I've never built a house. We've never built a house. Alicia and I have never built a house. Uh, and frankly, I don't know that I want to. Marriage is hard enough as it is, so we try not to invite, you know, challenges and potential conflicts into our lives. Hashtag know your limits. But when I hear people talk about it, it seems fun, you know, especially when you're doing everything from scratch. You get to pick out all sorts of things and arrange the things. You get the colors and the, the structure and the rooms and the lights and the light fixtures and the doorknobs, claws on and on. So many things to think through. Most of it is enjoyable. Floor's a big deal, so I hear. You know, what kind of floor, what pattern, will it be? Carpet. I'm a carpet guy because I wrestle with my boys. The wood hurts. <laughs> Tiles. You know, what will you do? You know, those tiles, though, they're worthless if they're covered in sewage. Though we don't like to think about it, the plumbing of the house is absolutely vital. Actually, way more important than those tiles are. But you only think about the plumbing when things go wrong, right? A friend of mine named Ryan loves to talk about church leadership as the plumbing of a house. Some of our guys don't really appreciate being compared to sewage pipes, but I think it's actually a really good metaphor. Christians tend not to think about or be interested in church leadership until the pipes start leaking. Here at Southside, we talk quite a bit about church leadership, church government, polity, and we do that because God talks quite a bit about church leadership, church government, and church polity. In fact, he gave us, the church, three whole books that deal with church leadership. They're known as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that tell us, among other things, how God wants his children to understand church leadership. So this morning... Later, we're going to have the privilege of installing three new elders, so it's a good time to reflect on God's will for the structure of his church. So if you've got a Bible, flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those Bibles in the chair. It'll be page 932. Page 932. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, but I want to start our time by looking there at verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy 3. In many ways, we have the purpose of, of the books here. Paul writes to Timothy in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God tells us how we ought to act in his house, tells us how to behave in the church, how to conduct ourselves in his house. He has house rules, and so we want to honor him. And we want God to bless this church, and he has, and we want God to bless the mission of this church. And so we want to have our church structured around God's word. This morning, let's consider five points together. We'll look at the aspiration of an overseer, the character of an overseer, the character of a deacon, the family of a deacon, and then the service of a deacon. And the main point is that God tells us how we ought to behave in his church, and fundamentally, foundationally, its leadership must be holy. So first, let's consider the aspiration of an overseer. Look at 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. First things first, what is an overseer? Uh, King James, 
translate it bishop, which the early church actually messed up pretty quickly on exactly what was going on here. The word simply means supervisor or someone in charge of a given operation. The word in Greek is episkopos. Maybe you'll be familiar with the Episcopalian church tradition, which is called so because they are led by bishops, but they have one archbishop who's over several. We're going to see that actually in the scriptures, the church is to be led at the local level by a plurality of bishops in each local church. And what's really important to understand is that this title here, overseer, that he uses in verse 1, is interchangeable with the title pastor and elder. Now, in America, we say pastor. I don't really know why historically, but everyone calls ministers in America pastors. Not really that way overseas. It's minister there. But here it's pastor. But did you know that the New Testament, the Bible, never uses the noun pastor? The noun. Not one time. Ephesians 4.11 mentions pastor teacher so you can maybe count that one time the noun is pastor the noun pastor is used over and over and over again the noun elder is used sometimes the noun overseer is used like our passage this morning but it's all the same office so it's really important to understand when you see that in the scripture an overseer is an elder is a pastor teacher new testament teaches very clearly a two office leadership overseers and deacons In fact, let me read Philippians 1-1 to you. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Well, there it is. Two office structure. So an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. Flip over a page to 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. So in 1 Timothy 3, Paul's given the qualifications for an overseer. But notice what he says in verse chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So in chapter 3, he's speaking of the leaders of the church, and he calls them overseers, if anyone aspires to be an overseer. But here, just a couple chapters later, he says, let the elders flip over a couple books to Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Chapter 1, verse 5, where we have... A secondary list of qualifications, Paul writing to Titus, and notice how he describes the leaders here. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's, then he leaves out the same qualifications, but here in Titus he calls them elders, And again, just notice there is an order that God wants in his church. Sometimes we treat these things as if they're just, you know, supplemental. They might be suggestions. Well, no, God has an order that he wants, and he tells Titus to go put it in order. And what's the first thing he's to do? He's to appoint elders, plural elders. So we have an overseer is an elder. You don't have to turn there with me. Well, actually, do turn there with me. Go back to the book of Acts. Turn left a few books. Let's go to Acts 14. Acts 14, 23, the church is growing. Here we have the early church on mission together. And what do they do? 
Actually, I'll start in 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is what missions is. New Testament missions is going places and sharing the gospel, seeing people converted and raising up and appointing elders. Flip over to Acts 20. Here we have Paul leaving Ephesus, and he's saying goodbye to the elders there that had been established at the church in Ephesus. And again, I'm talking about the fact that it's the same office. Notice what he says there in verse 17, chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then he addresses them. We don't have time to look at it, but I encourage you to check that out sometime. Last time we installed elders, it was this passage that we looked at. But look down at verse 28, how he speaks of what those elders are to do. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So notice, an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. He's speaking to the elders who are to oversee and to care the word of shepherd. So elders oversee and pastor. Pastors are elders who oversee. An elder is a pastor, is an overseer. One more verse, you don't have to turn there, but listen to the way Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. That's all Peter was. He was just a fellow elder. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed to shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, being overseer. So again, an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. Peter's writing as a fellow elder, and he tells them to oversee and to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. So an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. Y'all got that yet? I'll say it a few more times. God's word is clear. He wants his church to be led by a plurality of elders who are overseers, who are pastors. This is unlike corporate America. This is not a board of executives who sit in some back room and make decisions. This is a team of shepherd leaders. This is a team of pastors. Men who know the flock and care for the sheep and feed them with a word and lead them to green pastures. And as offensive as it is, In 2023, God's word is clear that this office is limited to men and men only. In fact, look at 1 Timothy. Go back to 1 Timothy and look at chapter 2, verse 11. The scripture really couldn't be more clear here. You'll have people that have PhDs in Bible that tell you that these verses don't mean what they sure sound like they mean. I would just submit that they they mean what they say and they mean what they sound like they mean. 1 Timothy 2.11. Let a woman learn quietly... With all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. For the life of me, I don't see how people can say, I do not permit a woman to lead or teach men to become, I do permit. We don't do that with God's word, at least at Southside Baptist Church. Couldn't be any clearer on the, on the matter. So God's will for his church, his order, is that it's led by a plurality of spiritually qualified, which is what the bulk of our time will be on, spiritually qualified male overseers. 
And did you notice something? Every verse I read, and we could read a lot more, every time elder or overseer or pastor, teacher is mentioned, it's in the plural, every time. Sadly, there are a lot of churches that either think that God's word's not clear on the matter, or worse, they don't care. But remember chapter 3, verse 15 that we just started with. It's written that we might behave correctly in God's house. That's why we have this. God wants us to conduct ourselves in a certain way in his house. He wants us to follow his house rules. At our house, you know, we got five kiddos. We're not really a a shoes-off kind of house. Uh, I get why people are. Uh, we probably should be if you think about it long enough. But, you know, we, we, we're really we're just not that way. But let's say that I was. Let's say that our house, and we made it super clear. Like, we included like three books in the Bible about it. So we had a sign out front, no shoes as you enter. And then you walk in, and it says, take off your shoes. And then there's a little bin. Put your shoes here. And you just stroll up in my house with dirty shoes. At the very least, I'd be disrespected and dishonored, Right? Well, here God has laid out in verse after verse after verse, even including entire books, what his will is. And too many people just structure their church however they want. I would submit that's not wise. God is wiser than we are. And some of you won't join here and some of you will move away. And so I would just urge you to find a church, if it's not here, that's rightly ordered according to God's word, a plurality of elder leadership. It's a matter of obedience to God's word. It's a matter of discipleship. I know we don't really think about it that way very often, but we are to obey Jesus personally. We get that. But we're also to obey him corporately. And so structuring his church according to his word is a social obedience. It's how we follow Jesus together as a community. We do what he says. Okay, so that's what an overseer is. It's an elder. It's a pastor teacher. And Paul says that if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task, an honorable position. Literally, the word is just good work. He, does, he aspires to a good work. And if someone would be an overseer, he must desire it. It's really important because in some circles, you'll often hear about a surrender to the ministry. You ever heard that language? I surrendered to the ministry. Didn't want to go. But God, God drugged me, kicking and screaming. Well, if that's the case, you're not qualified. Because a qualification for ministry is that you desire it. If anyone aspires to the office, he desires a good work. This work that's hard but good, leading and teaching and shepherding and training and discipling. So that's the aspiration of an overseer. Let's now consider the character of an overseer. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And so Paul lays out very clear qualifications here. If someone's going to do this good work, he must be a good man. Lays out seven positive traits, four negative traits, and then he elaborates on three final qualifications. And the umbrella term is right there at the beginning. He must be above reproach. Obviously, it doesn't mean that he's without sin, but you can't call his character into question. In other words, the mud doesn't stick. 
He's a man of integrity. No legitimate charge can be brought against him. They're like Daniel in chapter 8. The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. So he's above reproach. He has a, he has a proven character. Must have a proven character. It says he's uh, the husband of one wife, literally a, a one-woman man. Now, there's various views on this verse. Some, mean, some think it means that he could never have been divorced. He can only because he's got to be a one-woman man. I actually don't think that's the case. Why? Because Paul and Jesus both actually provide exceptions. There's rare exceptions, but there are a couple exceptions where divorce can be legitimate. Death, obviously, abandonment by an unbeliever, or sexual immorality. So I don't think that's what he's getting at. Some, thinks, some think that it, he must not practice polygamy, but polygamy was not a widespread practice in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, it was against Roman law, so I don't think that fits the context either. I think one-woman man just means he's a faithful husband. Both the NIV and the New Living Translation interpret this verse correctly with their translation. They say, faithful to his wife. He must be faithful to his wife. Here's how one commentator puts it. An elder must have a clear and consistent pattern of honor, love, and devotion to his wife alone. So he's a faithful husband. I don't think it means that an overseer must be married, but normally he will be. He needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to be sober-minded. He doesn't take himself seriously, but he does take the things of God seriously. Thinks with sobriety. Serious. J.C. Ryle tells of a man whose friends came to him worried that he was becoming a little too serious, a little too sober-minded, and he said, no, I'm serious for everyone around me is serious. God is serious and observing us. Christ is serious and interceding for us. The Spirit is serious and striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. And why then should you and I not be serious too? And this man gets it. He's serious. He's serious-minded. He's sober-minded in his thinking. What else? He must be self-controlled, which is, again, important for all Christians. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? But an overseer must be able to control his emotions, must be able to subdue sinful emotions and feelings. The work of an overseer is often hard work. More often than not, it's negative work. If you think about the imagery God gives us as shepherding, shepherding is not pleasant, delightful, kick-up-your-feet type work. It's often hard. Many meetings are tense. There will be confrontation. There will be criticism. And he must remain calm and cool and collected. Self-control. And he must be respectable. He exudes qualities that evoke admiration. If you don't respect the leader, it's going to be really hard to follow him, right? He must be hospitable. He needs to open his home regularly. And this is where I hope we meet this qualification. But if we do, it's because of my wife's labor and sacrifice. This is where the wives of overseers come in. They're very important. Their homes are often open. And so they're regularly having members in their home. They're, they're connecting with people at lunches and coffees. They don't like to eat alone because they've got people that they could connect with and encourage and shepherd and care for and lead. He's hospitable. And then we have one skill mentioned in this list. 
a bunch of character qualifications and one skill, and that one skill is that he must be able to teach. Able to teach, meaning he has skill in teaching Christian doctrine. Sound doctrine is mentioned in some form or fashion in these pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, some 48 times. It's a big deal. It's the main deal. He must be competent to interpret and communicate God's word. And again, this is the only competency mentioned. That doesn't mean that every overseer must preach Sunday morning sermons. There's lots of ways that you can teach. That's a good goal to have, but he must be biblically and theologically literate. And when people ask him questions, he's able to show them in the Bible. When people sit under his teaching, they should be helped spiritually. And this qualification, able to teach, especially in this context, will require confrontation at times. Require confrontation often, actually. In Acts 20, that I just read, where Paul's talking to those elders, he tells them to be on guard. Because from among you, from within, will come false teachers and fierce wolves. And so overseers must be on guard. And these, in these three pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the elders are called to rebuke or reprove. That's hard to do. No one likes rebuking and reproving. No one likes confrontation. But in these three books, they're called to do this some 18 times. Flip over. Flip over to Titus 1. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Titus 1.5, we just read. Look down at verse 9. He must, this elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Sorry if you're from Crete. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. This is the calling of an elder. Rebuke them sharply. That they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But that's not all. Look at chapter 2 of Titus, verse 15. The elder is to declare these things. To exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Look over at chapter 3, verse 9. How should elders treat people who are causing division within the body? Titus 3, 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice... Have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And so not only you got to have skill in teaching and Christian doctrine, you also have to have some boldness because you're going to be called to confrontation at times. 
it's a hard combination to have. You've got to have steel spines and thick skin, but soft hearts. It requires a rare combination of boldness, yet gentleness, ultimately caring for the person who's in error. In fact, flip back a book to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Christian leadership is not for the bullies, but it's also not for the thin-skinned. Moving to the next one, an overseer is not to be a drunkard. And I realize I'm in a Baptist church, but contrary to many a Baptist, uh, the Bible doesn't actually require total abstention, but careful moderation. Drunkenness, however, is clearly forbidden for the believer. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. So he may be able to drink in moderation, but he better not get drunk. Again, this is tied to self-control, isn't it? So much of it is self-control, as is the next one. He's not violent. He doesn't like to brawl. Rather, he's gentle. He's not quarrelsome. He doesn't have a contentious personality. He's not a lover of money. He may have money, but money doesn't have him. Hebrews 13.5 says that he keeps his life free from the love of money and he's content with what he has. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They're not to love money. They're not to be peddlers of God's word. 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Overseers must not love money. Look at 1 Timothy 3 verse 4. Continuing in this list. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must manage his household well. His children are under control, keeping his children submissive. In other words, his children are to respect and obey him. You know, there's this whole category called the PK, right? You've heard of it? It should not exist. It should, that category should not exist, and it would not exist if we took these words seriously. In other words, if we took God seriously. It's a qualification for ministry. 
And so as you consider overseers, you got to consider his family. He should have an exemplary home. He leads his family. He disciples his family. He educates his kid in the Christian worldview. Unruly children reveal a lack of loving discipline, a lack of managerial order. And notice what he says. If he can't lead his family, how can we expect him to lead his church? If he can't manage his home, he's disqualified. If he's not a leader at home, he can't be a leader at church. This, friends, is probably the qualification that's ignored more than any others in this list. I like the way Vody Bauckham puts it. Vody Bauckham says, man feels called to be a pastor. Let him get married. Have some kids. Raise some kids, and we'll see. There's some truth in that. The home is the proving grounds for the church of God. And did you notice that? Paul says it's God's church. How can he care for God's church? It's not our church. It's not the overseer's church. It's not the senior pastor's church. It's God's. That's what he said. And remember what I said in Acts 20, verse 28? Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. It's good for leaders of the church to hear and to remind ourselves that this is God's church. It's to be about him. It's to be for him. It's to be structured by him. And here we get a glimpse of God's heart in the matter. How will he care for God's church? These house rules are here because God knows best and because God cares for his church. We know that, obviously, Jesus shed his blood for the church. The church is the bride of Christ, Ephesians 3.10. His eternal purpose was to display his glory through the church. The church is God's plan A. It's the apple of his eye. He cares for the church, so he institutes godly leadership in his church to lead, teach, shepherd his flock. He's the chief shepherd. He cares most. And he installs under-shepherds who will care for his bride. Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this overseer shouldn't be a new believer. He, he must not be untested unless he become prideful and be condemned just like the devil was condemned. He fell due to pride. Reminds me of the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. The rocky soil, it, it immediately receives the word with joy, but it has no root. It endures for a little while and then falls away when the going gets tough. Or the thorny ground that hears the word with joy, but then the, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come in and choke the word out. Quickly green, quickly gone. Not so an overseer. He must be tested over time. And he should be well thought of by outsiders. Even pagans should say, that's a good dude. And notice the, the implications, the consequences here of this verse. Serious. If he has a poor reputation... He's vulnerable to falling into disgrace, into a snare, into a trap of the devil. The enemy loves, he sets traps. The enemy loves to see all people fall away. He especially loves to see church leaders fall away. Why? Because often many fall away with him. It's a tragedy when pastors morally disqualify themselves. This guy should have a good reputation. So if we were to sum all this up on the overseer, we'd say he's got... 
to be a man of character. Got to have one skill, but fundamentally, he must be holy. God majors on character qualifications, I think, for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is because God calls all believers to obey them, to follow them, to submit to them. Again, I know I'm talking about a lot of countercultural things, even counter church culture. No one talks about these verses anymore. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Commands the church to obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We, all, we only want to obey leaders who are obeying God, right? That's why this is all here. God only wants you obeying leaders who are obeying God. That's why this emphasis is here. Footnote. This is one of the reasons why we're constantly pushing local church membership at Southside. Because God commands all Christians to obey their leaders. Which leaders? Are all Christians called to obey all Christian leaders? I ain't signing up for that. No, it's God's will that every believer join a local church and follow those leaders. If you don't ever join a local church, you can't obey this command and many, many others. And on our side, it helps us know who we're accountable for. Did you hear that verse? As those who will give an account. This is why we take membership so seriously on the overseer side, is we want to know who we're responsible for. We're not responsible for anyone who walks into this room. But for those who've covenanted with us, okay, now we can shepherd and care for them as those who will give an account. Must be men of character. Then he moves to deacons. We're currently training several deacons. We take a long time, plan to install them later this spring. So here he first addresses the overseers, the leaders of the church, and then the, the deacons, the servants of the church. In the Bible, there's a clear distinction between overseers, elders, pastors, and deacons. Overseers lead, and deacons are those who serve. They meet practical needs. That's what the word means. Deacon just means servant. Literally means table waiter. But we take that as servants. Matt Smethurst has a really wonderful book on deacons, and he defines deacons this way. He says they are model servants in the life of a congregation who are installed to assist the elders. They spot and meet tangible needs. They protect and promote church unity, and they serve and support the ministry of the word. He's getting most of that from Acts chapter 6. Turn over there with me. Here we have the first installation of the elders that meets several of these definitions that Smethurst gives us. So again, we're looking early in the church, right? Sixth chapter of Acts. Church is exploding with growth. Acts 6.1, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint, here we go, that didn't take long. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. There's that word. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here we have elders, apostles, now elders, leading the ministry. Deacons will facilitate the ministry, but the members do the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. Again, what did Paul write in Philippi? To the overseers and the deacons. Lots of Baptist churches in particular, are really confused on this issue. Not quite sure why historically, because the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention wrote a book arguing for overseers and deacons. Well, we got confused along the way, and so lots of Baptist churches are led uh, by committees, which you don't find anywhere in the scripture. Sometimes they're led by deacons, but we see very clearly that deacons are a servant role. Overseers, elders are to lead sometimes. Heaven forbid, they're led by a, a sole senior pastor. But God's clear and repeated will for his church is, that, is to be led by a plurality of overseers or elders or pastors and served by a plurality of spiritually qualified deacons. So let's consider then the character of a deacon. Verse 8. 1 Timothy 3.8. Deacons, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Similar, must be dignified, men of dignity, worthy of respect, not double-tongued, must be sincere, not hypocritical, not deceitful in speech, doesn't drink too much, not a drunkard, not greedy, also content with what he has. Look at verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. So deacons, too, need to be good theologians. You need to hold to the mystery. Remember, mystery in Paul has a real specific meaning. It's a revelation term. Mystery is something that was a little bit obscure in the Old Testament, now clearly revealed. And specifically, it's the fact that Gentiles and Jews are on the same page. They're one in Christ. He tells us that in Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so deacons must hold this mystery with a clear conscience. You need to know the word. You can't hold it if you don't know it. They need to have a good grasp on Christian doctrine, on the gospel, on the reality of the new covenant. And once again, they shouldn't be a recent convert. They should be tested first. So again, while we take our time when it comes to hiring and when it comes to installing elders and deacons, it's often six months, 12 months, sometimes more. In 1 Timothy 5.22, he says, don't be quick to lay your hands on someone. They need to be proven, proven blameless, just like the overseers above reproach. What about the family of a deacon? Fourth, look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. 
Paul now mentions uh, the, the wives of deacons. Maybe your translation says women. You know, feminism is the air we breathe. And so many now would advocate for female deacons. It just won't work, though, for a few reasons. This word for woman here, it's the word gune. It can mean woman or wife, depending on context. But anytime a husband's mentioned, we know that it's talking about a wife, not a woman. In the very next verse, he speaks of a wife. And plus, it wouldn't make any sense to say that a, a female deacon must be the husband of one wife. It just doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the context in Acts 6 either. Acts 6, where the beginning of the diaconate starts, that would be a really wonderful place. If God's will had been for female deacons, that would have been the time to do it. But he says instead, find seven Holy Spirit-filled men. And in fact, there's two words for men. Hang with me here. I'm going to geek for a moment. But anthropos is this word that can mean people, like our mankind, a generic term. That's not the one he uses there in Acts 6. He uses the word that specifically and only means men on the air. And so clearly here, he's talking about the wives of deacons. And so much of deacon work, actually, even in 1 Timothy and in our church, has to do with widows. And so it just makes perfect sense that it would be helpful to have the wives involved in the diaconates. And she, too, she must be dignified and sober-minded and faithful in all things. She mustn't slander. Then he goes back to the deacon. The deacon, like the overseer, needs to be a faithful husband. Once again, the home is the proving ground. He must manage his kids and his household well. His family's in disarray. He's not ready to be in church leadership yet. And then we have the service of a deacon, verse 13. Fifth, the service of a deacon. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This also is a good work to give oneself to. They gain a good standing. They gain great confidence in the faith by their serving. It's a great ministry, a vital ministry. And so what screams over and over from these passages? Character matters. Character matters. Character matters. Holiness matters. Did you notice there's not much of a job description here? Not a whole lot about what they're to do. You know why? Because the qualifications are the job description. It's not much on what to do, but what kind of man he needs to be. I think one of the reasons the church at large has been so compromised and often hurt is because we tend to value competence and charisma over character. Just this week, I saw a British pastor tweet this, so I thought it was timely. I would share it with you. He said, when I hear of fallen pastors, these themes seem repeated. Family neglected. Number two, no day off for holidays. Number three, obsession with status. Number four, devotions became sermon prep. Number five, little accountability to fellow elders. But number six, incredible gifting. We overvalue number six. The Apostle Paul would agree, God would agree, character matters. And so how should you respond to these verses? Very briefly, aspire, expect, and support. Aspire. Aspire to these qualifications. What all people should be, overseers and deacons must be. And so aspire to these qualifications. 
Men in particular, are there areas in your life that you see, yeah, that, that's holding me back? Well, work on that area. Young men, college kids in particular, you ought to now begin to shape your life and build habits so that one day, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you'll be a fantastic lay elder in your local church, overseer. Every member expects your leaders to embody these qualifications. Expect them to. Require them to. This is why we do what we do. We take our time, we put them up, we ask questions, we talk to their spouse. And then finally, support. Pray for your overseers and deacons. And more than anything, pray for our holiness. I hope you pray regularly for the leaders of this church. And make part of your prayer, God, would their hatred of sin increase? And would their love of the Lord Jesus Christ increase? Sorry, would their hatred of sin increase and their love? of the Lord Jesus Christ increase? Would they be holy? Would they be wholeheartedly pursuing you and your purposes and your word? God tells us how to behave in his church and fundamentally, the leaders must be holy.